ervaring. Take the fact that he develops weapons of mass destruction very seriously. I did not have sexual relations with that woman. Well, it turns out I'm the most, uh, and I think most of you would agree to this, I'm the most transparent president probably in the history of this country. What does it mean to raise a child in a post-truth society where the daily news is riddled with famous, successful people lying about who they are? Yeah, I, I am black. I definitely am not white. What they've done. I've said it for seven years. I've said it for longer than seven years. I have never doped. Or what they've invented. Any lab test from a tiny drop of blood from a finger. It's in our history books. Because people have got to know whether or not their president's a crook. Well, I'm not a crook. And topping our pop charts. That was Millie Vanilli, the lip-syncing pop duo that had to give back their Grammy. And this is Carol Lloyd with Like a Sponge, the podcast about the science of how kids learn and flourish. And today we're talking about raising kids in a society fueled by deceit, spin, propaganda, and creative accounting. If you didn't recognize any of these A-list Pinocchios, you've been living off the grid on a pristine mountain for the last 50 years. When you start to look for liars in our culture, there's an unlimited supply of super successful frauds. Athletes, activists, celebrities, CEOs, and of course, presidents of these United States. All these luminaries we place on pillars to admire, to trust, to believe in. Then they lie to us. In this divided moment in our nation, there's not a lot we agree on. But there's one thing we probably won't argue about. These are dark days for truth. Fake news, CNN, conspiracy TV, MSNBC. Truth, political era. There's no such thing as objective facts. I think it's a rejection of truth. What we're seeing is the end of truth. And, 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 and can you believe it all? You can't believe anyone. The word is post-truth. Journalism in a post-fact world. Look, alternative facts are not facts. They're falsehoods. Here's how Ralph Keyes put it in his book the post-truth era. I think it's fair to say that honesty is on the ropes. Deception has become common at all levels of contemporary life. We lie for all the usual reasons or for no apparent reason at all. It's no longer assumed that truth-telling is our default setting. But here's the kicker. That book, it was published in 2004 which means it was written before fake news, deep fakes, swatting, spoofing, the subprime lender scandal, Russian Twitter bots, and Bernie Madoff. To make matters worse, there's a double standard about honesty in our culture. We say we value it, but research shows we don't practice what we preach. The average American lies regularly. In one study, nearly 60% of the participants couldn't engage in 10 minutes of chit-chat without lying. We even seem to tolerate it from our leaders. When we're confronted with evidence of lying from the leaders we support, we rarely alter our views. We shut out the truth and choose to believe the lie. When the stakes are higher, studies show people are even more willing to abandon speaking truth to shame. 
In a national study, nearly half of all adults admit to cheating in a relationship, but only one in four report telling their partners. And maybe we should regard these numbers with some skepticism. Studies have found that 60% of respondents say they would lie to survey questions about marital infidelity. Do the math, and you get a lot of grown-ups lying, cheating, and lying about cheating. We raise our little muggles with the wise counsel that honesty is the best policy. But how can we raise kids that value honesty when adults are lying all around them? It was just meant to kind of introduce her to the school, um, like, where did she go to school? Um, Where was she coming from? And why was she coming to, like, Pittsburgh High School specifically? That's Trina Paul. She was an editor-in-chief at her high school newspaper in Pittsburgh, Kansas, when one of her fellow editors started working on a routine profile of the incoming principal, a woman named Kay Robertson. And right from the beginning... From the very first Google search, something seemed off. I believe that she said she had attended Corlin's University. Um, and so we had decided to look that up. None of us had ever heard of that university. And we did um, a lot of the website that listed Corlin's University um, had the words like diploma mill or um, like accreditation scam um, and stuff like that that we thought was off. And that was just from, like, an initial Google yeah, search? Yeah, just after Google search. Um, and, like, that immediately raised a concern as to how the superintendent or the people who were looking into hiring her had not realized this. And we had just by looking it up online. Pulling on this thread quickly unraveled the story the new principal had written into her resume. The woman had claimed to be the founder of a school consulting company, but this chapter of her professional life also seemed to be falsified. A lot of the images that she had put in her brochure from um, a consulting company that she claimed she owned were found by doing like a reverse Google image search. So there would be a picture of a building and she'd be like, I helped design this school in Um, I think she said she was from Dubai, and so we would just do a reverse image search, find, like, an image of a building, like, in Washington State or something, and it was obvious that a lot of um, her resume had been falsified at that point. What did did you think as this was sort of unfolding? What was your your train of thought? It was, why, why did the responsibility fall on us of, like, student journalists of, like, 17 or 18-year-olds. Like, why wasn't an adult capable of doing what we had done? Capable um, of doing their jobs, you mean? <laughs> yeah. Um, and it, was, it just felt frustrating. And, yeah, it felt frustrating. Also, like, having to take our concerns to the superintendent, who initially did not listen to us at all. Oh, interesting. What was his attitude at first? Um, it was you need to trust our process. Um, like we have looked her up when we have done our job. Um, it is not like your position to like question what we've done. Trina remembers that deciding to tell the truth wasn't easy. Pittsburgh's a small town. Whatever happened would be public and be a big deal. And there was pressure not to make waves. Trina even heard from friends that she and her fellow reporters were putting their noses in places where they shouldn't. But the disapproval only made them redouble their efforts to check their facts. There was no margin for error. 
They called the City Hall offices of Stockton, California, where Robertson had told them her graduate school was located. They talked to the person in charge of maintaining the database of accredited colleges. She and her fellow reporters nailed down all sorts of details before going into the interview with the principal. I remember going into that interview and being really prepared about the questions and then feeling really thrown off by the way she articulated herself. Um, I would almost describe it as like Kelly Conway-esque, where you would ask her a question and she would kind of direct herself in whatever way she wanted to. Like she just kind of avoided answering all the questions that we had. They published their article exposing their new principal's fabricated past. Within days, the school board met, the principal resigned, the story went viral, and Trina and her fellow reporters were featured in the New York Times, the Washington Post, getting national acclaim for speaking truth to power. This story caught fire because it's got the arc of a YA novel. The truth wins out, and teens are the soothsaying superheroes. But when I asked her what she'd learned from the experience, Trina's answer was not what I expected. I would say that it just generally makes me more cautious and cynical about people's intentions and about um, how people present themselves, especially people in positions of power. Um, Yeah. You might have thought she'd say that even the smallest voices that speak the truth can win. Instead, she learned that no one should take what adults say at face value. Trina's experience jibes well with what scientists say about honesty in kids. Researcher Michael Lewis, director of the Institute for the Study of Child Development at Rutgers Robert Wood Johnson Medical School, conducted many of the earliest and most influential research on children and lying. He says much of what researchers know about children and lying contradicts a lot of conventional wisdom. The question of how soon uh, children come to a lie is quite uh, shockingly early. Our own work, as well as the work of others, show that children by two and a half to three years of age are quite capable of lying uh, and uh, capable of doing so, and adults uh, cannot detect whether they're telling the truth or lying. And as children get older, they get better at lying, not worse. In other words, liars are not born, they're made from exposure to the adult world. But Lewis says all lies are not created equal, and this distinction is important. Lying has many uh, motives. Uh, You can lie to protect the feeling of others. You can lie to protect yourself from punishment. You can lie to yourself as in self-deception. Children are capable of all of them. Moreover, as they get older, they, in fact, learn to lie uh, even better. But let me say that our work, and certainly the work in the field, indicates that everyone lies. Adults lie, children lie, and we do it all the time. Lying is as common uh, as walking. It is something that human beings do, and they learn to do it well. And um, 
some of that lying is socially acceptable. Not only is it socially acceptable, it's socially necessary. Children learn very early from their parents, directly from how their parents behave toward them. Lewis conducted early research on lying and children that found some surprising results. They took children into a room and set up a toy behind the child's back and said, Don't look at the toy. We're going to play with it in a little while. Then the experimenter says, excuse me, I have to leave the room for a minute or two. Remember, don't look at the toy until I come back, and then we're going to play with it. After leaving the child alone in the room for five minutes, that's a long time, the experimenter comes back into the room and looks at the child and says, did you peek? And here, the results are most startling. Children who look and lie about looking, that is, they say they didn't look, have higher IQs than children who look and confess to looking. Children who lie about looking are more emotionally adjusted uh, than children who lie about it. I can buy the idea that young kids who lie have higher IQs, but more empathy, more emotional intelligence. But Lewis says it's important to reframe how you think about truth and deception and how both can be used for good or for ill. I'm saying that we have to come to understand that lying um, uh, is not per se a moral evil. At the, and currently, we believe it to be uh, a moral evil. There is what we call rules of etiquette, how to behave appropriately in social situations. These rules of etiquette do not uh, tell us that we should always tell the truth. So, for example, if we're invited to someone's home, and we have dinner, and we, uh, we didn't like the dinner, and we didn't like the company, and uh, our hostess uh, seeing us to the door says, I hope you've enjoyed yourself. It is socially and etiquettely appropriate to say, I enjoyed it. Thank you so much for having me. Whereas, in fact, that's a lie. What you really inside our feeling is, wow, I'm never going to come here again. The food was terrible and the company was no good. We know that sometimes we need to lie. In fact, when you live with someone else, one of the first things you learn, men and women, is sometimes keep your mouth closed. Being aware of this means rethinking how we approach honesty in raising children. What we need to look for in raising our children is to commit good citizens, to commit ourselves to children who are concerned about others. I would argue that in the service of that objective, it is sometimes necessary to, in fact, lie. So, honesty is a virtue, yes. 
But more important is truth-telling in the service of moral courage, kindness, and care. That's why Lewis emphasizes that parents should focus on the full context of their children's actions, not simply on whether or not they're telling the truth. The other thing um, uh, that parents have come to believe, as you and I have, as members of this society, Mm -hmm. is that relationships require utter honesty. So parents are enormously upset when the child lies to them because they see it is a violation of interpersonal relationship. Right. Parents will say to the child, you lied to me. You lied to me. I'm going to punish you for violating our interpersonal trust. So do you think that's just off base? Totally off base. If your child takes a toy of another child and tells you they were given that toy and you later discover that the child took the toy on a play date, your response to the child is that you lied to me has missed the moral point. The moral point is you've taken something that doesn't belong to you. Lying is the natural consequence of doing something that's morally wrong. So if you focus on the lie rather than on the moral wrong, you, in fact, are focusing on the wrong thing. So in other words, the ultimate goal should be on the focus of your child's moral decisions. Are they lying to cover up the fact that they did something wrong so they can do it again? Are they lying to protect someone's feelings? Are they lying because they're afraid of consequences? The why of the lie is really important. So given these nuances, what does the science say about how children learn to lie and tell the truth? Research suggests that asking children to promise to tell the truth increases the likelihood they will. This discovery was found to be true even in high-stakes situations, as when children take the stand to testify in court, as well as in classrooms before tests. When asked to sign an honor code promising not to cheat right before a test, students were less likely to cheat than students who did not sign the form. Positive disciplinary practices also encourage honesty in children. In one study of different elementary school students in West Africa and Canada, Kids at schools with harsh disciplinary practices lied more often and with more skill. On the other hand, kids in schools that practiced positive discipline lied less, and they weren't as good at it. Similarly, positive messages about honesty seem to beat out cautionary tales about lying. In one study, groups of children were told one of two common honesty fables, the boy who cried wolf, and George Washington and the Cherry Tree. The kids who'd heard the story about young George telling the truth about chopping down the cherry tree were less likely to lie than the kids who'd heard about the boy who cried wolf and the dangerous results of lying. The irony is that the highly effective morality tale about Washington's youthful honesty is itself a lie. The only thing we know about George Washington's childhood is one thing which is he told the truth. When asked that he chopped down the cherry tree, he said, I cannot tell a lie, I did so. 
that story has been told to American children for the last 200 years. And the fact is, it's not true. It's a lie. It was made up. Right. Isn't that we, funny no. that we, it's it's the basis of so much of our uh, uh, country's lore. And yet. It is. And it's totally made up. And the idea that somehow, if you didn't lie, you could get to be president is ridiculous. Tell me lies, tell me sweet little lies. Tell me lies. Indeed. Few recent presidents have been known for their transparency or truth-telling, which brings us back to how we're raising a generation of children in an era when there's less trust in the integrity of our federal government than ever before, and people report low levels of trust in almost every institution. Not surprisingly, this lack of integrity is also showing up in kids' behavior. I'm talking about cheating. According to the International Center for Academic Integrity, a nonprofit that tracks cheating and plagiarism, high school is a veritable cesspool of deception. In surveys of over 70,000 high school students across the U.S., 64% said they'd cheated on a test, and 95% reported they'd participated in some form of cheating, whether it was on a test, plagiarism, or copying homework. What's more, decades of research suggests that cheating in high school and college has been on the rise. Harvard education professor Howard Gardner told the New York Times back in 2012 he'd observed an eroding of students' ethical muscles over the 20 years he'd studied academic integrity. What's behind these egregious statistics? Experts point to a lot of things that have changed in the last few decades. Technology, group projects, mounting academic pressure on kids to perform. And all the research suggests that conversations about honesty can influence how honest children are. But what should that conversation look like? Michael Lewis told me lectures, or worse, tirades about lying won't work, and missed the larger point. So we decided to address the elephant in the classroom in an open-ended conversation with a real kid and a real parent. Sophia Ware is 15 years old and attends a public high school in Northern California. Her father, John, is an architect and engineer. They drop by my home one evening to give a kid parent perspective about the landscape of cheating in high school today and how kids can keep their moral compass in a post-truth moment. The research shows the biggest factor in influencing whether or not kids cheat is whether they perceive that their peers are cheating. So first I wanted to know, what's the norm at her school? Have you seen any cheating going on at your school? Yes. So what does it look like? People will ask you, can I see your paper in class? Or they'll ask for your homework. Or you'll just see kids sharing work. That's really common. Teachers will say, like, people will photocopy tests and pass them around or sell them. You can also get tests off of online. How do you get them online? I'm not sure, but I think You've there's... You've heard that there's some... Yeah, there's, like, it? a whole market. Wow. Yeah, it's a big deal. 
And so um, when someone, some, some kid asks you to like copy your work, what do you say? I say no. And so how does it make you feel? It, it's only happened once, and I was in seventh grade, and it made me feel kind of bad for the kid because I knew he had a lot of pressure from his parents. And I think that's why people cheat so much, more so now in our generation than your generation, because there's more pressure on getting good grades and going to good schools, whatever it takes to get there. Mm. And so I felt bad for him, but I wasn't going to let him copy off of me because it wasn't going to help him in the long run. Research backs her hunch. The rise in cheating and plagiarism has been linked to ever more intense academic pressures. In competitive university majors, where kids are graded on a curve, cheating goes up, not down. Sophia told me that cheating wasn't widespread at her school, but she's overheard a diverse group of students trading schoolwork and cheating tips. She says the cheaters range from struggling to straight A. And research confirms this. Type A students who feel failure is not an option also cheat. The extent of all this cheating in high school is new to her father, John. I don't remember coming across people cheating in exams or um, in other contexts in high school. In high school, he says, kids didn't feel as pressured to succeed. But all that changed in college when the competition intensified and certain students started devising ways to get around the workload. I wasn't in a fraternity, but I studied engineering. And in engineering, there's just a lot of labs that require a lot of intense work. Mm -hmm. And uh, it would really help if you had the lab notebooks from prior years. And so fraternities would have kind of banks of lab notebooks that, oh that the God. students would just use. Right. And so the people in the fraternities would tend to do better in those, and then the people who weren't in the fraternities didn't have access to that. But whether it was dishonest or cheating, is it's a little unclear to me, because you can say that, you know, whatever means you need to learn, all's fair. I remember my dad saying, like all's fair in love, war, and mathematics. And by that he meant that if you're studying mathematics, whatever it takes to figure out how to solve the problem is, is legit. All's fair in love, war, and mathematics. John understood that his father, also an engineer, was offering a valuable maxim to focus on problem solving and learning wherever you could. But the same phrase could also be interpreted as a ruthless directive to get the right answer by whatever means necessary. Well, you see, in, in math and in, and in science and engineering, the tests that we took, they weren't multiple choice. So you had to show your work, and you got graded on showing your work. So um, you still had to memorize the problem-solving method. Or if it was an essay, you still had to write that essay. But Sophia, raised in the current climate where schools are attempting to create stricter guidelines about how you learn material and study for tests, doesn't buy it. She thinks by any means necessary is cheating. I think that's cheating. Because even if you still have to learn how to solve the problem, it's still focusing on a more pinpointed problem. So uh -huh. you can just 
memorize how to solve that problem with those numbers and it makes you less versatile if another problem comes up that has like negative numbers or mm -hmm. different exponents or something. Research suggests that schools with the most successful policies around academic integrity have clear and consistent rules, communicated in a way that all students understand. But Sophia says that isn't the case at her school. It depends on the teacher. Uh-huh. But for my science teacher a few years ago, he was super serious about cheating as well. So if you even said to someone, if they ask how was the test, and if you said it was really hard, or there was this one question about gravity, or something like that, you get a zero and the other person gets a zero. How do kids know whether something counts as cheating? Do teachers talk about it and explain it at your school? They don't really. Uh, I had an incident that happened recently to me that is kind of cheating, but not really. Uh, I received a B on this big paper that we had to do, an 88%, and the teacher logged it in on, the, on my report card as a 98%. And I was so happy because at first I thought she like regraded it and I got a good grade, but then I realized, like, no, she wouldn't do that. Uh, she just mistyped it. And so I was thinking about it, and it would get me an A in the class, so I'd keep a 4.0. But it, it was kind of cheating, because I really didn't deserve that grade. And for all the students that did work really hard on it, and they deserved an A, it wouldn't be fair to them either. But at that point, I was kind of beyond thinking about others. And so I was going to just not tell her. She talked to a friend about her predicament. She made me realize that, that in the long run, it'll be better if I tell her and be honest with myself, even if in the moment I don't feel like it will be worth it. It'll help me keep my morals and know that I'm an honest person. And so in the end, I told her, and it really helped me, and I'm so glad I did it. But... Did you ask your parents what to do? Yeah, and they said... What did they say? What did your parents say? They said to keep it at a 98 and not tell her. Because so we did? We so oh, did. And we confused me. can't believe your parents. <laughs> so, so why... We were somewhat joking. <laughs> so but I, I, joking. But we did say that initially. We were but testing her. What were you saying? What did you think? Well, I think, I think most definitely she should have gone back to the teacher and said, look, this isn't... This doesn't seem right or something's mm -hmm. wrong here. Yeah. Um, I think that's but you, you but you have joking. to realize it wasn't a joke at least it wasn't for mom they did right. say don't tell the teacher like you oh, got it good job I don't know. But, anyway. I, but I think honesty and cheating I think if it has the potential to hurt others it's something is not okay if it's just a better opportunity to learn more information then and it doesn't hurt anyone that's possibly okay. But Sophia followed her own moral compass. She told her teacher about the grading mistake. But while she was wavering, she looked to her parents, to friends, to get their opinions. And that's maybe the best example of how honesty works, or doesn't. Societal norms hold serious sway. So you want your child to have a strong ethical framework, yes. But also friends who encourage them to do what's right a school with clear, non-punitive policies, and a relationship with you, 
where they trust you enough to talk about their ethical dilemmas or admit to crossing a line. Even with the carnival of lies all around us, research suggests you still have a big role in your child's honesty. When it comes to integrity, children are just prisms reflecting the world they inhabit. Yeah. That's it for this episode of Like a Sponge. If you like this episode, please tell your friends and family and give us a review on iTunes. It really helps people find us. Podcasts are a little like kids. It takes a village. Special thanks to Trina Paul, the student journalist who shared her story with us. Today, Trina is a student at Swarthmore College, where she contributed to another story of truth-telling that ended the fraternity system at her school. Big thanks also to Michael Lewis for sharing his research on honesty in kids. And thank you to Sophia and John Ware for sharing your experiences about the landscape of high school cheating today. Like a Sponge is produced by Carol Lloyd and me, Charity Ferreira, for Great Schools, thanks to the support of UC Berkeley's Greater Good Science Center and the John Templeton Foundation. Our sound editing and design is by Christopher Ferreira. Our advisor on the science of kids and character development is Dr. Rich Lerner at Tufts University. Great Schools is a school information site that also supplies parents with research-backed guidance on kids' development. Learn more at greatschools.org. 